You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. We're back with the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 11, so here we are, almost, gosh, 11 episodes in. It's been a good time, and it's time is flying here. Uh, we've We've had a number of great things to talk about in the last uh, 10 weeks, now 11 weeks, and we're going to keep on rolling on uh, as we move forward, hopefully do one of these every week for the entire year and keep it going. We're really appreciative of those that have downloaded the podcast and shared them around and uh, have commented on them. Keep up the good work. This is how we're going to get the message out to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And uh, the material we have this week was also pretty good. It's actually a pretty uh, interesting week. We had a lot of eclectic material, so it's uh, not a unified theme like we would normally have. Like last week where we had Jackson and Lee, which was an excellent week. But some really good material. We, uh, one of the pieces we have wrapped around to Jackson and Lee, so uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But before we get into that, remember, 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 uh, we have a conference coming up. At the end of February, February 26 and 27, 2016, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we're going to talk about the PC attack on the South. Friday night, we've got a good discussion on what that actually means. You'll have uh, five presentations of about 10 minutes each, and we'll talk about some, some things that maybe you can do to try to push back against this, how to, how to argue with your uh, quote-unquote friends about the particular issue, uh, how, to pre- how to present the South, and then on Saturday, we've got the meat of the conference, which has uh, excellent speeches by all the participants. Uh, some of those who aren't participating on Friday night are participating Saturday, including uh, Barbara Marthal and uh, Bertram Hayes Davis. And we have a banquet Saturday night where uh, Hayes Davis will present his topic, which is Jefferson Davis Renaissance Man. Of course, he is the great, uh, great-grandson of Jefferson Davis. So uh, it will be a good time. Also remember that uh, we exist on your generosity alone. We are a nonprofit organization, so if you like this podcast, if you like our website, if you want to see more programs, and one of the people commented on the uh, ad we're running right now for the for the conference, we need more of these. Well, we need support from you then. Uh, please make a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. Help us keep things going. Uh, we, we, uh, we want to see you. We want to get out there and meet you. We want to, uh, to uh, uh, push this message of exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition but in order to do that, we need your help, and uh, it's expensive to run things. So um, please, please, please uh, help us in our mission to do that. Uh, we've seen a lot of growth in the last year. Uh, we've had a, a lot of success, but we want to keep this going and keep moving forward. We've had a really good year, uh, even early 2016 at the Abbeville Institute, and uh, we want to keep that momentum moving forward. So please consider donating, and please consider helping us in our mission to uh, to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. So, with all that said, on to episode 11 and the meat of the episode. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, we actually had five very interesting articles, all of them uh, not really under a unified theme, but I'll, I'll try to weave them all together the best I can and talk about how they fit within the Southern tradition uh, and the first, as I said, was a wraparound from last week, and it comes from a 1908 biography of Robert E. Lee written by Thomas Nelson Page. Now, uh, you might be familiar with Thomas Nelson Page. He was considered to be one of the leading uh, men of letters in the South in the early 20th century and late 19th century. In fact, uh, in his old age, he was tapped by the Wilson administration to go and serve as ambassador to Italy. Uh, and he did that very well. Didn't speak Italian, but he learned and uh, became a very good ambassador. But before that, uh, he was considered to be a prolific writer. He was a lawyer uh, and one of the leading intellectuals in the South uh, from a very old uh, Virginia family. Both the Page and Nelson families uh, were very old Virginia families. And he wrote this biography of Robert E. Lee in 1908. And the reason that this was put up there is kind of a a wrap-up to... The week we had last week where we had several articles on Lee and one on Jackson and one on uh, American hypocrisy where we talked about how Southern symbols are being destroyed and attacked uh, in a just a vindictive uh, whitewashing of history, something that really hasn't been seen since uh, uh, in in Western civilization, I would say, in in terms of its scope uh, and, and its attacks since 
really the French Revolution. I mean, this, this is part of that revolutionary spirit. Now, I know that uh, over time you had places like in the Soviet Union where statues came down, and rightfully so. I mean, uh, Joseph Stalin was not Robert E. Lee. Uh, and to equate the two, or where we've had uh, you know, uh, images taken down of Nazi Germany, this is exactly what's happening here. I mean, this is the problem of all of this, because people like Lee and Davis uh, and any of these, uh, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, et cetera, et cetera, they're being compared to, to homicidal maniacs. Uh, you know, and you look at the character of someone like Lee or Davis or Forrest, take your pick in your uh, Southern leaders of the 1860s, and none of these people compare to someone like Joseph Stalin, who was out purging millions of people and starving out a whole province in the Ukraine so that they wouldn't bend to his will. Uh, this, this guy was a homicidal maniac. So was Adolf Hitler. And to say that the South in any way, shape, or form was even close to that is a distortion of the past. And uh, when you have people like Quentin Tarantino get up and start railing against the flag, it's the American Nazi flag. This is just silly. Uh, this stuff uh, is, is indicative of the Pandora's box that was opened by the French Revolution, and we have to push back against it because Robert E. Lee was a real American hero. Uh, the men who uh, were, were fighting for the South in the 1860s and the principles of self-determination, these were American principles. And I think that's one thing when you look at Southern apologetics, you have to emphasize that. It's not we, we get into a problem when we start saying, well, it's heritage, not hate, or, uh, you know, we, we play onto the other, other side's field at that point. We, we play into their game. We have to emphasize that uh, the Southern tradition is the American tradition. That's what it's always been. In fact, the South was America. And uh, to, to say it wasn't is to distort American history. So that's what a page, and this is a very short little piece, and, and the, it's the concluding chapter of that biography on Lee, and the title is simply The Heritage of the South. And it's so beautiful. The last part of it, the last two paragraphs, are just so beautiful. And I'm going to read those to you because I think this gets... This was written in 1908, now remember. So over 100, 100 and, what, six years ago. And how much has changed in 106 years? It's, 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 it can be depressing, but I think it can also be uplifting in one way. That there was once a time that people had a real sense of history and place. And that if we are going to want to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, if we need to sell that to people, which is what needs to happen, this is how you do it. And so uh, when Paige, I'm going to read this to you, and so I'll talk about it after I do. So, quote, the more than twice four years, through more than twice four years, their survivors and their children endured what was bitterer than the sharpest agony of the battle time and strong in the consciousness of the rectitude came out torn and bleeding but victorious. Through more than twice four years, their survivors and their children endured what was bitterer than the sharpest agony of the battle time, and strong their consciousness of their rectitude came out torn and bleeding, but victorious. Now, he's talking about the end of the war there, but yet Southerners were victorious. Such fortitude, such courage, and sublime constancy cannot be in vain. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, so the blood of patriots is the seed of liberty. The history of their valor and their fortitude in defense of constitutional liberty is the heritage of the South. A heritage in which the North will one day be proud to claim a share as she will be the sharer in their work. You want to sell the South? He told you exactly how to do it. Uh, and, and so when you start playing into the slavery issue, you know, and, and well, it's, a, it's not about slavery, it's about slavery, etc. Et so getting into that kind of thing. The issue is larger than that. What Page is saying is that the South lost but was victorious. And the South was victorious because of the history of constitutional liberty. And one day the North would share in that heritage. One day they would wake up and see it. And he's saying this in 1908, and I guess we can look back now 106 years later and say, well, no one ever woke up. But it's still there, and I think people are waking up. And I've told people several times, 20 years ago, you wouldn't see what's happening in the United States today happening in, in the 1990s. We're having honest discussions about things like decentralization and nullification and state interposition uh, and uh, self-determination, uh, these type of issues that are really important to the future of constitutional liberty. We're having serious discussions, and, and most of them are centered on peaceful discussions. Uh, you know, how are we going to do this peacefully? We have to change the heart if we're going to change the mind. 
And that's exactly what the Abbeville Institute is doing. We're, we're here to discuss these ideas, to have people digest them and think about them, whether they reject them or not. We're putting them out there. This is a political issue. We're trying to say, okay, uh, you know, these are things that maybe uh, you know, people in the past had said. We can apply these things, the original Constitution, the original understanding of the Constitution, uh, the original understanding of the na- nature and relationship between the federal government and the state governments. I mean, these are issues that we need to be discussing to change the heart and the mind. So all, all Page is saying here is that the South will eventually win because those issues are stronger than anything else we can put forward. That position is stronger than anything else we can put forward. And so I said there's going to be kind of an interesting theme. I'm going to weave all these things together. Uh, they're all eclectic, all these articles. It doesn't look like there is a theme, but there is a theme. And that theme is always the Southern tradition. So I'll weave it all together for you. And then he concludes, and again, you look at this, you can get depressed about this, or you can say, well, I mean, uh, you know, this, this would be great. But then he concludes, someday, doubtless, there will stand in the nation's capital a great monument to Lee, erected not only by the southern people, whose glory it is that he was the fruit of their civilization and the leader of their armies, but by the American people, whose pride it will be that he was their fellow citizen. Meantime, he has a nobler monument than can be built of marble or of brass. His monument is the adoration of the South. His shrine is in every Southern heart. And so last week, we, we definitely touched on that. And we had a lot of comments and a lot of interest in the articles we ran last week uh, on Lee. And Lee really is the embodiment of the South and the Southern character, and which this is why people like um, Pryor tried to tear him down, you know, misreading, or, you know, reading the man. And as I said, misreading the man. He's under constant attack because if you can tear down Robert E. Lee, you can tear down Southern civilization because he was the embodiment of Southern civilization. And so that's all that Page is saying here. But wouldn't that be great if people actually saw Lee as he truly was seen back in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the early 20th century? He was not just a Southern hero. He was an American hero. He was a man that was his birthday was revered not just in the South but in the North. He was seen as, as another Washington. Uh, yes, Northerners said, well, he fought for the wrong side, but wouldn't we have loved to have had Lee? Wouldn't we have loved to have had a guy like Lee? Who's a better character, Robert E. Lee, the upright Christian, or Ulysses S. Grant, the miserable drunk, the vulgar drunk? Uh, who is a better embodiment and representation of what America actually is? And for years, it was Lee. And now, it's the drunk and the homicidal maniac Sherman, or Sheridan. Those are the guys that people say, that's the embodiment of America. Well, this is the problem with how we flipped history on its head and why it's important to keep reminding people of who Lee actually was. And, of course, when you start taking Lee away, and we're seeing what's happening in New Orleans right now and the statue of Lee is coming down, when you take this away, uh, you take away what was good about America and how the South was the American tradition uh, and how the South was America. Uh, The Southern tradition is the American tradition. Lee did represent what was best about the United States and the American people, if there is such a thing. As uh, John uh, Taylor of Caroline said, you know, there are there's no American people because there's no utopia for utopians. Uh, there were Southern people, but I think that, char- that culture and that character of the Southern people, that's what people recognized out of America. Not anymore. Uh, it's, it's something else. It's commercialization. It's, uh, it's a Northern character. Uh, and it's the internet and all the other things we have. That's what people recognize out of the South. And, you know, the thing about about uh, Lee and great men, Lee was a great man because of who he was, and, and we, have such a, we have a situation now in the United States, particularly among young people, where it's so narcissistic. Lee was so tied into duty, and now people are so narcissistic. It's all about looking at them and what they can do, and they do the silliest things or stupid things, it should be actually said, to try to gain fame and fortune. Lee became famous... No fortune, but he became famous because of who he was. And you can say that about uh, virtually any Southerner, with one exception of this group, and I'm going to talk about him, him uh, in this. We, we have a guy that uh, didn't fit that mold, uh, but it's, it's a funny story. Uh, Lee became famous and important because of who he was, and you can say that just about anyone else who we try to, uh, to talk about in the Southern tradition as examples. They were, good, they, were, they were great men because of who they were as men. 
And so that's why this uh, Heritage of the South piece, again, so short, it's only 300-something words, but it's so good uh, because it emphasizes how great Lee was as a man and how that, how the North should embrace Robert E. Lee and embrace what the South was fighting for, which, as Page says, was constitutional liberty. That is the heritage of the South. If we're going to sell the South, that's the thing we really need to put forward. It's constitutional liberty. Constitutional liberty. All right. So that's uh, the first piece. On Tuesday, we ran a piece in the review entitled Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates. Uh, this was um, written by uh, uh, Dave Benner. Uh, Dave has written for us uh, a number of times. He does uh, very good pieces. Uh, this was a discussion of Jefferson's relationship with the uh, Muslims in North Africa during his administration. And there was just a book that came out recently by uh, uh, a couple of guys who are popular historians. Uh, Kilmeade, Brian Kilmeade is the uh, is the main author, and he's the he's the the uh, guy that has the most credit because of his position on Fox News. Uh, I actually reviewed this book uh, for the uh, for the Daily Caller, uh, and it's an interesting book. Uh, it's a popular read. Uh, they have a little different perspective on why this book is important, uh, why Jefferson's position here is more important than others because of the current climate against radical Islam, which, um, you know, we do have a problem with that in the world. Uh, but uh, what, what Benner does here is very good because he shows that even though Jefferson was interested in pr- protecting the United States and protecting our sailors and our shipping, he wasn't doing anything unconstitutional. And that's the real issue with Jefferson and the Barbary Wars. Uh, again, this theme of constitutional liberty. I talked about how that's what Page said we were defending. So Jefferson here as a Southern president and as a, as a person who's interested in what's often called strict construction has a, has, a, has a quandary. How do you handle this situation through the Constitution uh, and not abuse the powers of the executive branch? And Jefferson did a very good job of that. Uh, we don't often give him credit for that, but Jefferson was not interested in going out and violating the Constitution to take down uh, the Barbary pirates. He, nor was he interested in doing something which would have, would have been completely stupid and continuing to bribe these people. That was a violation of American sovereignty. So he wasn't going to do that. Uh, and as Benner says, quote, Jefferson, to his credit, wished to deviate from the kings of old by walking a different pathway in pursuit of republicanism. Uh, so he was trying to do something a little different. He wasn't going to pay the pirates $225,000. So they declared war on the United States, and they seized uh, American ships, and, they, and they, uh, they took Americans as slaves, and Jefferson needed to do something. Uh, but he still, as Benner said, Jefferson still pledged. This is a quote from Jefferson. He was pledged that he was, quote, unauthorized by the Constitution without the sanction of Congress to go beyond the line of defense. So... Jefferson communicated all the material to Congress, and he let Congress give him the authorization to go out and do something to try to handle the situation. He still wanted to maintain a constitutional constraint on the executive branch. He didn't want to say, we're just going to fly off the the rails here, and we're going to go out and do something stupid and violate Article 2 of the Constitution. We're in the presidential election season, and, and you won't find a candidate, really, who's going to say these kind of things. Uh, but Presidents used to do this, and uh, in my forthcoming book, uh, which is out actually February 8th, I should have said that at the beginning, but February 8th, nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her uh, through, uh, through regnery history. Uh, I, I actually include Jefferson and the four who tried to save her because of his first term, because he was interested in staying within the constraints of Article 2 of the Constitution, uh, and we should give Jefferson, Jefferson a lot of credit for that. And these are the people we should emulate if we're starting to look at um, you know, who are the best presidents in American history? And what you find, if you look at most of the, uh, most of the best, a lot of them were Southern uh, because they had this very limited view of the executive branch. Now, not all were, but uh, even those that weren't, generally relied on a Jeffersonian interpretation of the executive branch. People like Franklin Pierce and, uh, you know, so even those at Calvin Coolidge, even those that weren't still were looking from a very Jeffersonian position, Grover Cleveland. Uh, so uh, pick up that book if you if you would be so inclined. Uh, it's it's a nice quick read. It's um it's a lot. It was a lot of fun to write it. So I digress. But on, off the uh, sales pitch here and back on to Jefferson. Um, so uh, Congress would then pass legislation to authorize Jefferson to use force, and Jefferson would do so, and the end result would be, of course, a victory for the United States over the Barbary pirates. 
Now, Benner concludes, while all modern presidents should recognize Jefferson's refusal to usurp war power, they haven't done so for over a century. Still, it behooves all Jeffersonians to point to this incident as a quintessential proof of the potential for Republican government to exist under an executive that understood the confines of the Constitution. The discipline maintained by Jefferson during this ordeal undoubtedly exemplified the plausibility of an executive much like all hereditary monarchs in the world uh, of the, at the time. So Jefferson's doing something different. It's unlike anything else in the world. And this is why we should, we should admire Jefferson for this. He also goes on to say, Benner says, Refusing to go past the line of defense prescribed by Congress, Jefferson fostered an encouraging early example of how the executive was to carry out foreign policy. In contrast, today's presidents unilaterally send forces all throughout the world to achieve foreign policy goals without the direction of Congress. They constantly cite the constitutional transgressions of their predecessors as justification for their actions. This is often done even in the face of congressional opposition. We just saw that in Syria with the Obama administration. Uh, you know, Congress says you can't bomb Syria. You can't. I'm sorry, in, in Libya, you can't bomb Libya. We do it anyways. So uh, this is where Jefferson should be an example. And again, the Southern tradition. This is the Southern tradition. This is you want to sell the Southern tradition to people who need to have some type of anchor. And that's what the Southern tradition is. It's an anchor. You know, without that tradition, we're we're a ship lost at sea in the United States. We don't know where we're going. That Southern tradition is the anchor, the heritage of the South, the character of men like Lee, the, the resolute defense of the Constitution like Jefferson in his first term, uh, and even before that. Or people like, even better, people like John Taylor of Carolina and John Randolph of Roanoke and, and uh, Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina. Take the, take the old Republicans and talk about their defense of the Constitution. People like John Tyler, who was president. I mean, you want to talk about the best president in American history, it's John Tyler. Uh, so these are the people we should be looking at not uh, the scoundrels that have been in the executive branch in, say, the last hundred years, for the most part, all were bad. I mean, really, if you start to look at 20th century presidents, it's a pretty thin field to pick from of anybody that's any good. And that actually gets to the next piece, which was written by Clyde Wilson. It's true what they say about Dixie. And so this, again, a little 300-word piece written uh, uh, several years ago, but still um, important because of what he says about the Southern tradition and how the South is, as Calhoun says at the end, the, the anchor to this entire union. So Jefferson's the anchor constitutionally. The heritage of the South is the anchor uh, socially, culturally, uh, in so many ways, uh, morally. Uh, it, it is the anchor. Uh, if we lose that anchor, we lose the original union. Maybe we've already lost it. We probably already have. But it's not too late to start saying, hey, we need to bring this thing back. Uh, the South exemplified what was true and valuable, not only in, in American history, but also in Western civilization. Uh, and that's what we need to be talking about. Yes, any, any civilization has stains, but uh, again, when you start talking about uh, defending the South, do we qualify every time we start talking about Greece with the fact that the Spartans and the Athenians were slaveholders? Do we qualify any time we talk about any civilization through the history of man uh, that they were slaveholders? Do we do that? Uh, and because we don't, why do we always have to qualify it in the South when you're starting to talk about what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition? Uh, they were what they were, but they left a legacy and ideas that should be contemporary and permanent. Uh, and as Richard Weaver says, we don't, may not want to live in the Old South, but they can teach us how to live. And so that's why we should be pushing the Southern tradition. And that's why those are the things we need to learn to talk about. So we've had that with Jefferson. We've had that with... Um, with Lee here and Thomas Nelson Page. So let's talk about uh, what Clyde says about, um, it's true what they say about Dixie. Uh, and he says, basically the South is the true predictor of what's going to happen uh, in the Union than any others. And he says, yet the notorious squeak vote on the Obamacare bill shows that the old reality still exists and that the South is still the core of mainstay and mainstay of any viable American conservatism. He says, of the four census regions, the South was the only one to vote against the federal takeover of medicine. The South voted 71% against the bill, the Northeast 75% in favor, the West 61% I, and the Midwest evenly divided. Every Southern state voted a majority negative. The no vote included 19 Democrats from the South. 
if we remove the four sparsely populated Plains states of the Western Midwest, the Midwest totals total moves to a majority in favor of Obamacare, even allowing for the no vote of the southern border state, Missouri. And then he goes on to say, this pattern is held on every major piece of legislation since 1965, even allowing that southern con- congressional districts are designed by federal lawyers and judges to maximize the minority vote. Immigration, balanced budget, public prayer, women in combat, the South has provided the break of the leftist agenda of federal grasp. Of the 212 nay votes on Obamacare, nearly half 100 came from the South. So what he's saying is that the South is this conservative opposition. For those that are looking uh, nowadays, when we're searching around, well, where is the true conservatism? I mean, is Donald Trump the true conservative? Is, uh, is uh, you know, Cruz the true conservative? What is real American conservative? All you have to do is look at the South. Well, that's where it is. This is, this is the heritage of the South. Uh, and so this is why you know, people don't like it. This is why people write, you know, better off without them. Because if the South wasn't there then the North could do whatever they want. I mean, this is something that is always perplexing. You know, the, the South has often complained about it. It's this problem, et cetera, et cetera. This is why Lois Lerner, I mean, wrote, and we put a quote up about this, it would have been better if Lincoln just let the South go for us. I mean, she's a, she's a Yankee. Well, yeah, I mean, if you want to have your, your socialist utopia and Bernie Sanders is your guy and there's no opposition to Bernie Sanders in the North, I mean, then you'd have Bernie Sanders and the South could have what they want. Isn't that much better? I mean, wouldn't that be much more uh, in line with self-determination? But yet we don't do that. So we just sit there and, and battle about these things over and over again. And of course, one, oftentimes the South gets left behind and, and, uh, and then you have people complain about it. So uh, then Clyde concludes, a century and a half ago, John C. Calhoun, one of the most prescient observers of the American regime, remarked that the South was the balance wheel of the Union, which prevented the whole, fu- whole from flying apart under the stress uh, uh, of the manias that regularly seize hold of the mainstream. It looks as though that is still true, though our ability to control the machine grows weaker year by year, and that's definitely true. Uh, though maybe, I mean, again, this is pessimistic. I have some hope that uh, that's not going to be the case forever, that uh, enough young people are starting to come around. They're, they're jaded. They're, they're, they're cynical. They know that uh, the center doesn't work. They, they look at this. I mean, look at the candidates that are now kind of the front runners. Bernie Sanders, now he's a communist, but he's not mainstream. Uh, Donald Trump, we can, we, can, we can talk about some problems with Donald, Donald Trump's policy uh, ideas, but he's not mainstream. Uh, he's, he's wrecking the mainstream. This is what people want. They don't want this mainstream garbage that's been shoved down their throats for years. And the South was never the mainstream in that it always was this very, very uh, principled conservative opposition. I do, th- I do say the South was American history, and uh, you know, in that way, the culture of the South was mainstream. But it was always resisting innovation, and that's what I mean by mainstream. The mainstream parties enjoy innovation, uh, as John Dickinson said. You know, uh, reason may mislead us. This is what uh, Madison was talking about when he, he said, look, we need to avoid, and, and other people in, in uh, the founding generation, generation, we need to avoid the schemers and mainstream, you know, this, this idea of, of reform. Uh, because that idea of reform is going to be dangerous in the long run to the stability of the republic. So again, here's the Southern tradition. The South is the, uh, is the balance wheel. The South is the weight. It's the anchor. Jefferson's ideas on the executive branch, that's the anchor. Uh, Lee and character. That's the anchor. And then you go on to our old friend here in Louisiana, Huey Long. So, uh, and this is just to put up there as a funny piece. And, and you can kind of move this into the Southern tradition because uh, this is written by, um, by Roger Busbis of Louisiana. And uh, Buzz, uh, Mr. Busbis has written some good stuff for us before on uh, Leonidas Polk. Um, but... Uh, Huey Long is a very interesting character, and not enough people focus on this New South period or the New South in general or the politicians and the leaders of the New South. And Huey Long is often revered, you know, kind of this larger-than-life figure, and he was. I mean, you had, uh, you had uh, Robert Penn's Warren's All the King's Men, which is about Huey Long, and then um, you look at the fugitive agrarians and their association with Long when they were at uh, Louisiana State University and all the things he did. I mean, this guy was a real character, and... He was, he was born from the South, uh, and the experience of the South, and that experience was poverty, and that poverty was brought on the South by the North. And so what's really interesting when you get to that 20th century period in this, uh, 
progressive South, and I think that's something that we don't often talk about enough, the progressive South, um, how what they were looking at doing, and, and, and when, when I talk about Wilson in, in my nine presidents who screwed up America, and, and I bring up how bad Wilson was, at one point, though, the South had a lot of influence in the Wilson administration. Wilson was bad because he violated his oath. But if you look at what the South was trying to do uh, while they were in the Congress in that period of time, I think that what's happening here is you do have this anti-state uh, capitalist strain in the South that goes all the way back to the antebellum period. They were not interested in state capitalism, which was federally funded internal improvements, protective tariffs, uh, central banking. And so when you look at what the South was doing in the, in the Congress during the Wilson administration, they were using the apparatus of the general government that had been given to them by the North to attack that fusion of banking, finance, industry, and government. And so in that way, you can understand what the South was doing now. Should they have been using the government to do that with more regulation and more legislation and bigger government? Should bigger government attack bigger government is a very good question, and I don't think that's the right answer. But I think you can understand where these people are coming from in that particular regard. They're looking at people like the Rockefellers. They're looking at the Aldriches. They're looking at uh, the banking industry, which has just completely destroyed the South. The war in their mind. Uh, at the end, if you look at people like Tom, what Tom Watson was saying, if you look at what people, other people were saying in the South, you know, these Jeffersonians, um, if you look at what they're saying, this is the agrarian South against the industrial North still. Uh, and we had to try to defend the agrarian South. People like uh, Henry de Lamar Clayton, who was pushing uh, for farm legislation because of all the poor farmers in the, in the South who couldn't make ends meet because they thought that the North had destroyed their economy. Uh, if you look at the, the interest in curtailing big banks in the North, these big banks were seen as enemies of, of, of the Southern people. Uh, you look at people who are interested in building up Southern industry, particularly in the South itself, that was a way to get people some wages and working because they couldn't farm anymore. Uh, and th- they, they had a much different type of uh, scheme when it came to labor than Northerners did. Uh, and that goes back to the old uh, paternalistic system, the, the way that South viewed, the South viewed labor, uh, even going in forward into industrial labor. You find that you know, even to this day, uh, some of your best companies to work for are in the South uh, because of that old tradition of family-centered business. We hear that all the time. Well, I like working for this business because it's like a family. Well, that comes out of the South, uh, that idea of, of kind of a paternalistic labor system. And is that when you take management courses in business and other things, these are the type of things you, you discuss. What type of labor system gets your workers working? Is it humane treatment of people? Uh, do you treat them like family? I mean, how do you relate with these people so that they want to work hard for you and do a good job? Uh, what kind of benefits do you give people? Uh, do you push them unmercilessly till they, I mean, they break? I mean, what do you do? And I think when you read a lot of uh, literature on Southern labor techniques in terms of uh, you know, uh, the philosophy of labor, you'll find that uh, there's a, a heavy dose all throughout the South, both antebellum and postbellum, of this paternalistic idea that uh, labor should be more family-oriented. Uh, and so you get this, it's often considered left-wing but it's really just kind of this holdover of the Southern tradition. And so Busbis says that, you know, Long didn't represent the old traditional South, and he didn't. Uh, he, he was opposed to the old aristocratic elite in Louisiana. He was a threat to tradition. He was trying to take them down. He was kind of a socialist, but there is this socialist strain, uh, you know, in, in, in the South, even into the antebellum period, uh, you know, uh, uh, Fitzhugh, George Fitzhugh, um, was considered uh, uh, accused of being a Southern socialist. Uh, they were very interested in class, uh, at least he was. Uh, and so you have this, uh, this, this idea of, you know, kind of the Southern socialism that's still uh, kind of a strain in the South, and, and uh, Huey Long represented that. Uh, so uh, in that way, you do have this other part of the South that is often not discussed. And I think at some point, the Institute, we're going to do a New South uh, seminar. We're going to talk about some of these things in the New South. And, and it is interesting history. We don't, we don't talk about the early 20th century as much as we should uh, and, uh, and even the mid 20th century. But of course, um, 
Uh, this piece is not about Huey Long's political beliefs, though Busbis does get into that a little bit, but it is more about Huey's uh, uh, taste in cuisine, and notably his recipe for pot liquor. And uh, what happened was, uh, you know, in 1931, uh, the editor of the Atlanta Constitution questioned uh, Long about his, his Southern diet, and, and namely his pot liquor. And, and uh, what pot liquor is, it's the liquid left over from, from boiling greens, right? So do you dunk the cornbread in the boiling greens, or do you break the cornbread up in it? And how do you make your pot liquor? And so um, this is a controversy because Huey Long didn't, didn't favor the traditional uh, pot liquor eating belief. So here's, here's Huey, Huey Long blasting traditional uh, pot liquor. Uh, and so then uh, when Long finally makes it to, uh, to the Senate, where he eventually uh, will be killed, uh, though it's not necessarily certain if he was killed by an assassin or by his own men on accident, um, he actually had a uh, he wrote a number of books and uh, you know he wrote his little book uh, Every Man a King and then a second book My First Days in the White House, but uh, in 1935 uh, he he was challenging a Roosevelt bill uh, that would have uh, curtailed the power of the Senate, and so in order to filibuster it, he got up and started talking about his. His uh, recipe for pot liquor. Uh, this is Huey Long's proper pot liquor recipe, and it's kind of fun. Uh, ingredients: turnip greens or mustard greens, water, and one pound of sliced side meat. First, you get some turnip greens. You have to wash the turnip greens many times. Turnip greens contain more magnesium than do mustard greens. You take the greens and the turnips, and you put them in a pot. Remember this: do not salt them. Do not put any salt. Do not put any pepper. Do not put any mustard. Do not put any kind of seasoning in the pot with them. Put in a sizable quantity of water. Put in there a piece of salted side meat. You ought to put about a pound, one pound hunk of side meat that is sliced but not clear through, just down to the skin part. It will probably temper the turnip greens when it has been cooked through. That is all the seasoning that is needed. When you have cooked the greens until they are tender and the turnips until they are tender, you take the turnips and the greens and the soup that is left is pot liquor. That brings on the real question of the art of eating pot liquor. You draw off the pot liquor and you eat it separately from the turnip greens. Um... So this is from the congressional record. This is part of his filibuster. Uh, and again, you don't see filibusters like this anymore. Uh, you know, people don't do this kind of stuff. This is fun. Uh, but this is, you know, part of Southern tradition and, and of course, cooking and eating and how we, uh, how we prepare our food in the South uh, definitely is part of that. And um, this goes back to David Hackett Fisher's wonderful cultural history of the South when the, the idea you get out of that, if you read what the, how the Cavaliers used to eat and then you read how the Puritans used to eat, I think it can simply be said that uh, Cavaliers dined and Yankees just ate. Uh, and so what we consider to be Southern cooking today is a very long tradition of eating uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, you know, fried food, of course, has always been part of it, uh, and uh, beef and meats. Uh, and uh, they didn't do that in the North as much. Uh, now, uh, we've seen in the waistline of the South, some of this cooking can be rather unhealthy. Uh, and some of that's brought on by the fact that, uh, you know, when you have a, a, a poor economy, you're going to eat what you can eat. But no one goes out and starts championing northern cooking. I mean, if you look at the popular cook uh, cookbooks in the country today, it's all southern cooking. You know, whether it's Paula Dean, who was raked over the coals recently, but uh, the popular cook now is... Uh, is the pioneer woman? She's out in Oklahoma, but when you when you look at what she's cooking, it's it's Southern cooking. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's some there's some you know some subtle uh, changes to it, but it's Southern cooking. Uh, and she calls it cowboy cooking, but that's exactly what it is. Uh, so this is what people like. People want to eat Southern cooking. Uh, it's the only good cooking out there, and uh, nobody goes uh, you know nobody goes uh, to the north and says, "Give me some Massachusetts cooking." Uh, I guess some people want some clam chowder or something, but uh, you know, other than that, uh, people want real hearty food, and the South has always had that, and of course, that's always been part of the Southern tradition. So again, we then in the heritage of the South, the South cooking, even cooking, is very much the American tradition. The Southern tradition is very much the American tradition, uh, and we're not even getting into music. Uh, we talked about literature uh, a little bit with Thomas Nelson Page. Everyone thinks the North is the literary center of the of the American world. But when you look at really good literature, they don't have a lot of that there either. Uh, I mean, it's so boring and awful. Uh, who'd want to read that stuff? So we want to get good literature. And, and you see this with, with uh, students in literature courses. They tend to like 
Southern writers better than they do Northern writers, and with good reason, because it's more interesting stuff. And so that actually gets us into the last piece, which uh, is, by the way, the last piece of January for uh, the Abbeville Institute for uh, January 2016. We're, uh, you know, next Monday, we've got February coming around, so we'll have a whole new month of material. But uh, this last piece is entitled Old South Education Before the War to Destroy Southern Civilization, written by George Crockett. Uh, Mr. Crockett uh, is was a teacher for years and wrote this little piece uh, several years ago and just submitted it as something we can put on the site. But I think it's interesting because this is getting into the modern idea of what we need to do in education. Um, and uh, what kind of educational environment do we want and what kind of things should we teach in an educational environment? Uh, and he makes the point that... Um, in the Old South, only those children whose parents thought they needed education attended school, but many did not. Uh, of course, a lot of these students were taught at home. So now we're getting to the homeschool movement. We're, we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, and basically, most people in the founding generation were homeschooled. And if you look at even in the antebellum South, you had a lot of people that were tutored at home for a long period of time before they went off to formal education. And a higher percentage of Southerners, he said, than Northerners attended college. Uh, and... Um, Southerners did attend quite uh, a number of institutions of higher education. And the point was classical education. As he says, classical education persisted in the agricultural South longer than in the industrial North. Classical education was about the Greek passion for truth and beauty and the Roman genius for government. So this is when we get to this question nowadays of what kind of things are we going to teach? And even in the homeschool community, uh, you have different methods of teaching. You have the classical method, which is where you you rely on literature uh, and uh, these type of things, a well-rounded view of the world. You do read the classics. Uh, you read uh, you you study uh, ancient history as well as American history. Uh, you study government from a classical perspective, uh, and the idea is to prepare you to think, not just to do. And so, as, as, uh, as he goes on here, in 1859, a leading intellectual and college professor of the Old South made the case for a liberal education versus a practical business education. And so this is where we have this very interesting argument, even to this day, with things like Common Core. What do we want students to do? Do we want to make them robots, automatons? This is how you read a manual, and this is how you go out and do stuff? Or do we want them to be able to think? And if you teach them a... Technical education. Now, technical education is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we need engineers. We need people to go out and do things in a technical field, medicine, science, all of these things. But the best people in technical careers are the people that have a classical background and that can think because you need to be able to make decisions that are not always based on the manual. And the best example that anybody ever comes up with that is Steve Jobs, who designed Apple Computer. Uh, Steve Jobs essentially said, you know, look, or, or, well, not said, but he, he followed a line in his life where art was important. The design was as important as the, as the hardware. And so if the design didn't meet, then you had a piece of hardware that nobody wanted. Uh, if you look at architecture, it's easy to make a Soviet building, just put a box up. But that's not what we want. And the nicest example of that Soviet architecture, if anyone ever goes to the University of South Carolina, just go look at uh, the building that houses the uh, history department. It is designed, I think. They brought over every Soviet architect they could find and stuck them on the campus and said, build us a campus. Uh, it's awful. You go from the horseshoe, which is beautiful, uh, you know, neoclassical architecture, into this other part of the campus, which looks like uh, somebody dropped them out of the 1960s, you know, actually 1930s Soviet Union, and put them there and said, build us a box. It's an awful building. Uh, and, I mean, that, that's indicative of how stupid the 1960s were uh, and the people that were running things back then, uh, thinking that, uh, you know, this modernity was going to somehow be great. That just shows you that classical is almost always better. Uh, and, and he says, uh, as, as civilization advances, so, does, so also do evil tendencies advance. There is, therefore, there is a need for liberal education to balance that, those increases. Uh, okay, so what kind of things did... Um, did Southerners read in the war, uh, before the war? I mean, what, what type of Southern education did we have? So we have this, uh, this idea of, of a classical education. I'm going to bring up at the end of this, uh, even after the war, how important this was. Um, so you had three things that were the, the center of life. It was the family, the church, and the school. And the idea was against the materializing tendency of the world. Uh, so this is what the South was putting into effect. 
Education must expand the mind and cultivate the general spirit. The function of both physical and mental education, quote, is to develop the human being into symmetry and manly beauty, to produce strength, suppleness, and agility, to cultivate, not efficiently in any one, in any one department, but universally efficiency, not a capacity to do one thing perfectly, but a capacity to grasp everything. This is the ideal Renaissance man. So we have a speech coming up, Jefferson Davis, Renaissance man. This is, this is what people like Castiglione were talking about in the, in the courtier. You had to be a man with the sprezzatura, as it was called. A man who could do many things well to be good at the martial arts, to be an intelligent man, and to be graceful and be able to converse uh, in, in a variety of situations and understand formal conduct. It was to have manners and politeness. In other words, it was to be Robert E. Lee. That was the ideal man. And if you were that man, you represented America well. And so this why this piece kind of heart, connects the first piece of the week and why they go together. So you had different things that this, uh, this professor in a southern college would recommend. In science, you had mathematics and physical science, chemistry, organic science, geology, art, included language, literature, fine art, and history. And then you had philosophy, uh, logic, psychology, metaphysical science, and theology. And this professor goes in in 1859 to explain what these things, why these things were important and what the students would have studied. So you would have studied things like Greek and Latin uh, before modern languages. You would have studied ancient literature. Uh, You would have studied science and philosophy to teach you to think. Art teaches the ability to express. That is important. Uh, You can go out and be a technical person all day, but if you can't write and you can't express and you can't market uh, your ideas, then what's the point? If you have no conversational skills, if you have no, uh, if you do not have the ability to partake in uh, good conversation, then all of your learning is valueless. So you have to learn how to converse with people, and you have to learn how to persuade, and you have to learn how to think and listen as well. Science, he said, teaches truth. Philosophy teaches the process of reasoning, using truth to arrive at further truth. The ability to reason and the knowledge of truth are to each other as the ability to chew and food are to each other. Each is pretty useless without the other. Mathematics teaches analysis. Geology teaches the ability to generalize accurately. Language and logic are the basis of understanding art and philosophy. To study the basis without studying the pinnacles produces only a one-sided culture. And... uh, the author goes on to say, a leading Old South man of letters began and ended his article on a classical education by stating that one cannot become an author of great literature in the English language without first making a thorough study of the Greek language and ancient Greek literature. Now, that gets into the idea of Basil Gildersleeve, who was the leading classical scholar in the United States, <clears throat> a southern uh, a southerner, a veteran of the war, and one of the leading uh, minds in the United States. And he quite accurately put forward that you know this this battle between the North and South really was a battle, was the American Iliad. It was the battle between a classical people and a non-classical people. Uh, it was the battle for the soul of civilization. Uh, and the South was hanging on to that classical idea longer than the North. The article goes on to say that uh, by the end of the 18th century, classical education becomes so widespread among Southern middling folk as well as gentlemen and down to secession, they continue to receive a solid classical education. And we've really lost this uh, in the South. We don't have that classical education anymore. And then he goes on to list some of the books that people would read. Uh, Thomas Roderick Dew's Digest of the Laws, Custom, Manners, and Institutions of the Ancient and Modern Nations, uh, things like uh, Carroll's Catechism of the United States History, uh, The History of Chivalry, uh, and Basic Education for... For uh, every Southerner who attended elementary school, academy, or college was study of the classics of ancient Greece and Rome. And he goes on to say this was the case until Thomas Dewey uh, that uh, the, uh, postulated the classics were worthless. And now you had to get rid of uh, those and replace them with other things. Um, so what we have is a, is a view here of the South as kind of this harbinger this this uh, of of things to come, or at least the changes in the South are a harbinger of things to come, and the erosion of the classical literature is, is what we're going to get today, where we, we don't really have people that can think, and that if we really still had a classical education, which is what a lot of people push uh, for their homeschool curriculum, would be a better situation for students in learning and understanding the world around which they live, 
Uh, we see that a lot of your homeschool students are the best students you have entering your universities uh, if they attend university or uh, getting out in the workforce because they have been taught how to think. And that's very, very important. So uh, this piece on education, which wrapping up the week, this piece on education ties back to Lee. It ties back to Jefferson. Jefferson was classically educated. Uh, it, it ties back to the fact that the South was this conservative counterweight, uh, that uh, even when you look at someone like Huey Long and the progressives in the South, there was this tendency to think that uh, there was something wrong with modernity and that it had to be resisted in some way and that tradition still mattered. Uh, even if it was, you know, the, the elites in society didn't think it was tradition, but uh, that's what these progressives, I think, in some ways were trying to do, to resist this modernity. Uh, even though they call themselves progressives, they were resisting what they saw as the evil effects of what uh, this consumerism, commercialization had done to the South. So this is all part of that heritage of the South and why I said all of these pieces, even though they seem discordant, actually all work together. So, we hope you enjoyed this week of the uh, week review at the Abbeville Institute. Uh, remember, uh, keep uh, forwarding our material, keep sharing our stuff. Go on Facebook, like us there. Go on Twitter, like us there. Go on YouTube, like us there. Come on out to our conferences. Uh, you know, please uh, uh, share our material with your friends. Uh, this is the only way we're going to perpetuate what's true and valuable about the Southern tradition uh, and all the complexities involved in that. Remember, we do exist on your donations, uh, so please consider a, a generous contribution. Uh, even for less than five bucks a month, you can become a member, and uh, that's a great thing. It'll help us support our cause, uh, and it'll keep things like this podcast going. So until next week, good day. Good day.